This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Phillies Backstage. I'm Tom Burgoyne, joined by my pal, John Brazier. Hello, John. I am very excited because uh, we have the person that we aspire to be. It's basically been our kind of hero because one person's a fanatic, the other person's director of fun and games. And if you add a chairman or an emperor of fun and games, it's not Dave Raymond who has it on his business card, Emperor of Fun and Games. It's our next guest, our guest this week, I should say, the legendary great Bill Giles. Hi, Bill. How are you? Hi, guys. Hi, Tom. Hi, John. We, we are very excited to have you because uh, we both have read your book. We obviously worked with you for, I've worked with you 28 years and Tom, what, 33? Yeah. 33 years. So uh, we know our material and we can't. <laughs> Can't wait to get started. Uh-oh, he's scared now. <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't fire either one of you. <laughs> well, it's not it's not too late yet. We'll see how this interview goes, Mr. Giles. All right. <laughs> uh, first and foremost, how you doing uh, with the pandemic? You keeping healthy? You keeping safe? Well, I had the COVID for a while, but it wasn't too bad. So I'm now immune for a while. I don't know how long. <laughs> Anyway, but I, I've been all right. It's uh, not exactly the kind of year we wanted in 2020, but we'll, we'll do our best. Good, good. Well, uh, again, you know, John said, happy to have you on. You know, we're going to go back into the time machine a little bit and talk about your career, uh, Mr. Giles, because uh, it really is amazing when you think about it. I don't know if everybody knows that, you know, your dad was the president uh, of the Reds for a long time and then a long time uh, president of the National League. And uh, I guess first question I had for you is just uh, what was it like growing up around baseball uh, as a kid? Well, I literally was born or raised in a in a baseball park. My mother died when I was seven, and it was just my dad and I. So I would go to the ball games with him and hang out with him after the game. And uh, I literally was raised in a baseball park. So I got it in my blood at a young age and still got it in my blood at age 86. <laughs> yeah. it's, been, it, it's been 100 years. <laughs> my dad wow my, my dad my dad started in baseball in 1920 mm. and 100 years for him and wow. then i've been with i've been with the phillies uh for 50 years now so so growing up in that environment uh talk about some of the i mean obviously you're probably in the dugout as a nine-year-old you know with superstar baseball players with you know infamous owners and 
Uh, I mean, what, who are some of the more memorable people that you that you basically got to hang out with as a kid? Yeah, because, John, the, the, the Reds were good back then. They won a World Series um, in 1940 and then right into the mid-40s. I mean, they were uh, always competitive. So, yeah, there, there must have been some uh, players that you interacted with uh, that, you know, you remember. Well, my favorite player at a very young age was a guy named Ernie Lombardi, who was a catcher. And... Uh, and the and the Phillies almost lost the pennant in 1939 because of me because Ernie Lombardi, whose nickname was Snodge, because he had a big nose. In fact, it was so big one of the coaches said he can take a shower when smoking a cigarette because his nose. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he went to have a meeting with my dad in his office. My dad's office was right near the clubhouse in Crosley Field and. Lombardi had left his mitt on the doorknob. And I took his mitt because I kind of liked it. <laughs> and I took it home. Well, Lombardi was a very sensitive guy, and he refused to play without his regular mitt. So my dad hired the FBI and police to try to find <laughs> Lombardi's mitt. And uh, he didn't play. And they lost three in a row, and they were in a pennant race in September. And my father was upset. Did you lose your allowance? So, <laughs> it's the first. It's the only time I got spanked because I, I uh, was out in the yard playing with Lombardi's club, and has big L O M on the back, engraved on the back of the glove. So and my lo- dad came. Okay. My dad. My dad came home one night. And said, "Let me see that mitt." And there it was. Oh, and he said, Bill, my star catcher won't play because he doesn't have his mitt. <laughs> did that make and the papers like, and everything? I mean, did, did that become common uh, knowledge? Oh, yeah. Big story in the paper. Wow. Giles' son steals Lombardi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, your dad, too, I mean, with the National League, um, being the president of the National League, uh, he really took the All-Star game seriously, didn't he? I know uh, he used to go into the locker room and kind of fire up the troops before the game, right? He did. He took it very seriously. And, and uh, we used to charter flights. The American League had one. The National League had a plane. And my dad wanted to have the National League plane land before the American League plane. Hmm. That's how competitive he, his, he was. Now, he also was supposed to be the – wasn't it him and the, or the other guy? One's going to be the commissioner. One's going to be the president of the National League. And, right. right. Fourth Rick. Right. And it was, like a, Rick. was it a coin toss or was it a – there was something odd that, that your, your dad could easily have been the commissioner of baseball. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, at the time that they fired Happy Chandler as commissioner, I think it was in the mid-50s, they kept voting, and my dad and uh, Frick kept getting nine votes, and you needed to get 12. And so they flipped the coin, and they decided that whoever lost on the coin toss would get the same salary, and... Uh, so my dad lost the towing cost, wow. and uh, so Ford Frick became commissioner. Hmm. Huh, how about that? And now for you, you you, you moved on. You were uh, you worked for the Reds for a little while, and then you were part of a group that um, kind of uh, 
established the well at the time the the Houston Colt 45s and John doesn't that just crack you up can you imagine today a team named after a gun right well and, <laughs> yeah. right and, and I if I understand it the copyright issues wasn't or licensing wasn't with the beer it was with the, the gun manufacturer huh. correct that, then, is, that, that is correct yep and then the, I guess they changed it to the Astros and this is where I love uh, the story where you know you were uh, you hired uh, a very famous, not famous at that time, but someone who became very famous to be the Dan Baker of, of Houston. Who was your PA announcer uh, when you, that you hired back then for the uh, Astrodome? Dan Rather. How great, how great is that? <laughs> Look at that. Dan Rather. And he was like, I there, guess, he was a Houston area newscaster, right? Yeah, he was kind of a weekend announcer. And I paid him 13 bucks a game. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh. And and there's so much that went on at the Astrodome. I mean, I love the fact that you came up with, which everyone knows that, that marketing slogan, that it was the eighth wonder of the world, right? And that's something that you came up with and put that, I guess, as part of the publicity package, which is great. Yeah. yeah nobody, nobody official ever named it the eighth wonder of the world. I just decided it was the eighth wonder of the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great line. And I put it, I put it in all the press releases. The eighth wonder of the world, well, and nobody ever asked. Nobody ever asked. Who decided <laughs> that. It was just assumed. And even uh, you know, you went from naming the, the team the Colt Forty Five to the Astros. How did I guess you were obviously part of that uh, discussion? Uh, what, was there significance to the term Astros? Well, the space program, right? Yeah, yeah. Houston, yeah. we have a problem. Yes. Right. That, yeah, yeah. The NASA had the head, headquarters there, and all the astronauts were there. And the first game of the in the Astrodome, I had all 28 astronauts throw out the first ball at the same time. That, and that was in 1965. 1965. And I didn't know this until I read your book that you hear the term astroturf and you think it's just a product. You know, that's the company was astroturf. That you know, dummy me until I read your book that it was actually because it was the turf that was in the Astrodome, and I love the story. Tell the story how you made the you guys couldn't afford the the turf that they came up with, so you guys made a deal, right, with a company that makes Astroturf. And yeah, I, my 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 boss, Judge Roy Hoffines, and I were in a meeting, and we couldn't get the grass to, to grow, which is a long story why that didn't happen. But we decided uh, we could try synthetic grass so we got a hold of the monsanto carpet people and we asked them if they could make a baseball field out of synthetic grass that would look good or excuse me make, make it out of carpet to make it look like synthetic grass and uh, they said they could and my boss said how much is it going to cost and they said a million dollars and my boss said i'll tell you what i'll do I'll let you call it AstroTurf, and you'll be able to sell that stuff all over the world because of the Astrodome. And sure enough, he made a deal. We got it all for free because of my good sales, my good boss, the good salesman. And that company went on to make millions because oh. because of the publicity they got from the Astrodome. That is correct. Yeah. And I love, love too, you know, that – you put together all these different events, uh, bullfights, uh, boxing matches where, you know, you had a personal experience with Muhammad Ali or I guess Cassius Clay at the time. 
you had tennis matches. You had all kinds. You had a basketball game. Elvin Hayes versus Kareem Abdul-Jabbar played at the Astrodome. Uh, tell us about putting all the, together those events. Well, it was a lot of fun. I mean, we had to try to get more money and revenue, uh, you know, to pay all the rent. And so we we had motorcycle races. We had the bullfight was the, was kind of the weird one because we had a big bull ring and we had the bulls and all that stuff, but you weren't allowed to kill the bull. So the matador at the end, he would stick his hand between the eyes of the bull instead of a sword or whatever. It was oh. kind of anticlimactic. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite the same thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> And what was it but, like when, yeah. when Muhammad Ali, like, or again, Cassius Clay at the time, because uh, you met well, him, that, right? That, that was my uh, kind of most exciting non-baseball event in my life. I, we promoted three of his fights, and I had to do the PR for it. And, uh, and Muhammad was a great guy. And on the third fight, he switched from Cassius Clay to uh, Muhammad Ali, became a Muslim. And Angelo Dundee, his trainer, said, now, Bill, when these guys in Cassius, or excuse me, Muhammad, comes into the ring, these very well-dressed uh, black gentlemen will be following him. And they're going to want to get in near the ring by me. And I don't want them in the ring area by me. So you tell them to go to their seats. So all these fine gentlemen came down with Muhammad Ali, and I, I stood there in the uh, near 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 the press seats, and I said, "Gentlemen, you'll have to go to your seat." And this one guy pulls out a forty-five pistol oh. and sticks it in my stomach, <laughs> and I said, "You may sit anywhere you want." <laughs> and that wasn't a cold forty-five promotion. <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> That's great. And then the other thing, too, is I love this story. Tell, talk about the time when, when your boss told you, uh, I guess that whoever owned the Astros um, was going to buy the Ringling Brothers Circus. And so they sent you and, and you went with Nancy um, to Rome as part of a press junket, right? Talk, talk about that trip. I love this story. Well, yeah. They told me and Nancy to be at the airport at a certain time and Anyway, uh, we get on the plane, and I still don't know where we're going. Oh, that's right, yeah. I had no idea where we were going. Then they gave me a stack of tickets, and we were we were going around the world. And halfway across the Atlantic, my boss told me what we were doing. We're going to buy Ringling Brothers Circuits. But the problem is there's other people, uh, including Madison Square Gardens, that was trying to buy it also. He said, so we're going under assumed names. We checked into the Excelsior Hotel in Rome, and he said, Bill, it's your job. I want a story and a picture of the signing of me with John Ringling North and every news agency and paper and so forth in the world. I said, okay, boss, I'll give it a try. So I was laying in bed and thinking that the first um circus was held in the Rome Coliseum. So I said, Judge, that was his name. I said, we gotta take this picture. 
in the Rome Coliseum. And he said, okay, I'll get Mr. Norris there. I said, well, I'll get the photographers and we'll meet at the Rome Coliseum. And I was laying in bed with my wife and I said, you know what we really need for this picture is a lion, a baby lion, because the picture of two guys in a suit isn't going to mean anything. So I go down to Concierge and I can't speak English. He can't, or I mean, I couldn't speak Italian. He couldn't speak English. And I tried to find out where I could rent a lion. And he told me where to go. And I went to the Rome Zoo and I go up to Zoomkeeper and, uh, the zookeeper and I said, where can I rent a, rent a baby lion? He said, follow me. So I did. And he took me to the great big lion. I said, no, 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 Bambino, Bambino. So, you know, we have no Bambino. So I was walking out of the zoo and there was a man photographer taking pictures of kids with a baby lion. So I sit on this bench and I negotiate giving this photographer 80 bucks to take his baby lion with me and Nancy to the Coliseum. So we're going in this cab down the main drag of Rome with a baby lion, Nancy and I and the photographer. And we take the picture and it makes the full back page of Life magazine. Wow. Is that right? <laughs> Yeah, and it was in every paper, every paper in the world that picture. That's oh, great. What a what a story! And it, and it, you know, listening to this too, Mr. Giles. I mean, to have that kind of background at the Astros, opening up the Astrodome, uh, and then all the promotions. Uh, you know, you, you really were the perfect guy uh, to usher in the vet, right? Uh, you got hired uh, in 1969 to come on board with the Phillies, and of course, uh, the vet was, uh, you know. Uh, it, was going to be uh, opening up in 1971. Um, how was that? Could you sense the excitement in Philadelphia uh, over the new ballpark? And could you, did you feel like you could bring some of what you were doing at the uh, at the Astrodome you know, to the vet? Yeah, well, I think that's kind of why the uh, Carpenter family uh, hired me because I was known as the crazy marketing guy. So, um yeah, when, when I came to Philadelphia, I was so disappointed to see the attendance at opening day was like 15,000, 20,000. And I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And in Cincinnati, they always had the first game of the year. And they had parades and they had all sorts of celebration around it. And they were always sold out a year in advance for opening day. And when I got to Philadelphia, they didn't make a big deal out of opening day. And, and to me, opening day of the baseball season is a bigger deal than Christmas for me. So I had to do crazy things uh, in order to call attention to the fact that the baseball season was starting. And the first year I dropped in the first ball from a helicopter and Mike Ryan caught it. And it got a lot of TV time and people talking about it. And, so then I read in the magazine that a guy can jump off of a cliff with a kite on his back. And <laughs> I hired the great kite man, which is a long story. But <laughs> anyway, it got a lot of attention. And well, I, love, I, I love the original guy. Uh, couldn't do it because he had to uh, teach the president of Mexico uh, water skiing, 
right? So you had, uh, so you had to hire somebody else who, who I guess was scared yes, of heights. Well, and that was uh, it was Richard Johnson because I, I remember Bob Gordon and I uh, wrote a book about the '93 team, and we we, uh, we did a lot of research on those first balls. And it was 1972. Richard Johnson was the first kite man. He he wiped out, you know, coming down that ramp. And then uh, the following year, were you a little nervous to bring him back, Mr. Giles? Because, you know, you, uh, you gave it a shot in 73. He tried it, and he kind of wiped out in the outfield. He made it to the field. But uh, were you a little nervous to bring Richard Johnson, kite man, back? I was. <laughs> 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 but you know, we got so much uh, PR on the fact that he crashed and almost killed himself. Uh, I I thought it would work in center field. It looked easy to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, 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 it took off, took yeah. off, and he cracked right in short center field. <laughs> and then it did work, John. 1980. Right? So you know, the year we won it all. We uh, it, it, we it changed it to a platform out in center field instead of a ramp. So the guy literally jumped off the platform, and it wasn't Richard Johnson anymore. It was T.J. Beatty. There's a little Maybe trivia yeah. for you, John. And. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and he landed right on home plate. Yep. And not I forgot the name. And not just Kite Man, but I know, uh, you know, as a kid watching, and then we also brought these back as an employee. But, you know, you had Cannon Man. You had Benny the Bomb. You had yeah. the, the motorcycle on a wire with the, the lady trapeze artist, right, hanging below it. And, right. Uh, and, yep. then, and then my – you got to tell the story. I know yes. we've, we probably talked about it, but – Probably the the greatest thing as a Phillies fan, the greatest promotion in my mind, and yes. I'm sure a lot of people, was the Great Walenda. Yep. Uh, tell the story about hiring the Great Walenda. He didn't have a net, and just just what was that like when you? Because you know it was going to be between games of doubleheader across the vet. That must have been terrifying for him, but also for you because you're the one who hired him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was particularly when before he did his walk he said i need a couple beers before i go <laughs> and, and then and then afterwards he had about six martinis <laughs> and his his daughter uh was up there with him on the catwalk and her husband had just died one of the walendas right so carl's son-in-law had just died two weeks before that uh on a fall and so uh i know she was a wreck and well, uh, and he stopped too, didn't he? Stop yeah. like midway through, and and what was you, what was going through your head when you when the great will end is stopping, and you got oh, people like Mike Demuzio pulling the wire tie, yeah, the guide wires, yeah. Well, that that's when I really got scared because he sat down on the wire, and was signaling signaling to the ushers and other people that were holding the wire, and I didn't know what was going on. I found out later that the, the wire wasn't taut enough, and it was moving around and he was scared to death he didn't want to walk on it until it got you know tighter and everything hmm. and uh that that was the scariest thing i i've ever done in my life i think was that scarier than richie and uh, harry being on ostriches <laughs> in an, on an ostrich oh, that, race oh boy that was the worst thing i ever did <laughs> Her, harry and richie they they were their faces were white before they got on the the little cart that was <laughs> was held by the ostrich. <laughs> Ostriches went wild. Like one of them jumped up in the stand. <laughs> that was a mess. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned Harry. Uh, you know, that was one of your uh, first hires as well. And I guess going back to opening day 1971, Harry was the MC. And Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Welcome to New Veterans Stadium 
and opening day. And thank you, because above all the festivities, the response that you have shown proves that Philadelphia has the best fans in the National League. On behalf of the Philadelphia Phillies, we thank you very much. Uh, that was his introduction to uh, Philadelphia. Uh, what led you to hire Harry Callis? Well, he and I were in Houston together, and uh, he was doing the Houston. I don't know whether they were the Astros or Colt 45 then. But anyway, he had been in Hawaii, and our broadcasting guru uh, hired him. And I, he was such a great guy, good, good person, a lot of fun, and had a great voice. And when we were had to fire Bill Campbell, uh, I brought Harry in, and, and I think you know combination Ashburn and Callis was the greatest team announcers that I've ever heard in baseball. Yeah, no question. That was a great hire. One other hire too is uh, Dan Baker. Uh, how did you uh, come upon Dan? Dan. Uh, he met with me and people recommending to me, and he was such a good person. Uh, I hired him. When was it? Nineteen seventy-one or? Yep. Seventy-two. Yeah, uh, yeah, he came sorry. in the second year of the vet. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that was kind of an accident. I didn't really know Dan before other people recommending to me. Hmm. Hey, uh, and then also, obviously, in the seventies. Uh, Tom and I grew up in the 70s and watched those great teams uh, with Larry Bowen, Mike Schmidt, and Greg Lazinski. Uh, we, we came very close, you know, all those years, but just couldn't get over the edge. But there was one guy that got over the edge, and you were very responsible for that person that's gonna, that put the Phillies over. Talk about the recruitment of Pete Rose, uh, your, uh, you know, your story in there, because it was obviously you were a, a critical part of that. Yeah, well, we wanted Pete Rose, and uh, Paul Owens was the general manager, and really Carpenter was the president at the time. And, we, you know, we'd been in the playoffs three years in a row, and uh, everybody kind of said internally, we need a, a leader. We need somebody that's been there and won before. And Pete Rose became uh, a free agent at the end of the 78 season, I think it was. And so I said – to the Carpenter family and Paul, I said, I know Pete Rose. He was a good friend of my dad, and I think I can help you on that. So I called Reuben Katz, who was Pete's agent, and I said, Reuben, we'd really love to have Pete in Philadelphia. And Pete was a good friend with Luzinski and Schmidt and, and Boa, and so he wanted to come to Philadelphia. And I was really surprised the Reds didn't try harder to keep him. So we uh, met with him and had, and uh, <laughs> we started talking about things. And they started, Reuben Katz and, and Pete started talking about how great they are, excuse me, he is off the field. He's a good promoter for your team, can do a lot of things. And we said, we don't, we know about Pete. We know Pete. We just want to know how much money you want. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the agent said, well, we've been offered uh, seven figures by a team. And really, Carpenter, who graduated from Yale, started 
counting things on his fingers. And said, <laughs> said, oh, my God, that's a million dollars a year. <laughs> and we can't afford that here in Philadelphia. We can't afford it. I'm sorry. We're going to have to just announce we couldn't make a deal. And we were willing to go to 600000 uh, but we didn't tell Pete that at the time. And then I took him back to the airport, and I kept trying to convince Pete he should stay in the American League because we did find out that Kansas City was the team that offered him a million a year. And, and uh, the agent, when I took him to the airport, they had a private plane, whispered to me and said, Bill, see if you can't get him to go to 800000 And I will try to talk Pete into coming to Philadelphia instead of Kansas City. And driving back, I said, oh, my God, I think I can get the TV station to give us another $200,000 a year, and then we can offer him 800000 So I met with the TV people, and in a day or two, they said, we'll give you the extra money. Hmm. So we were able to offer him 800000 a year, and he didn't take the million from Kansas City. And so we got Pete Rose. It's popped up. Boom, Rose, they'll have a play. Boom, dropped it, and Rose caught it. Rose was right there. It popped out of his glove, and Rose made the play. How much Pete Rose hustled. He came over to help out if he needed the help. How about that? And that's, that's pretty unusual, uh, getting, you know, is that pretty unusual for a deal to actually go right to a, you know, the broadcaster, radio, TV, to, to pony up the, the remainder that I, you were missing? I've never heard of it being done. Yeah. Other than that was that time. creative yeah. thinking. You're a problem solver, Mr. Giles, no doubt. That was good. <laughs> uh, well, bef- <laughs> before, before we get out of the 70s, because there's one other thing that happened in the 70s, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the Philly Fanatic. You know, I know you're – uh, the father of the fanatic. Uh, you're the guy who was responsible for bringing the fanatic from the Galapagos Islands to Philadelphia. He's still there having fun at all the games. Uh, and since I have you, I don't think I've ever asked you this, but did you ever get a call from either, uh, I don't know, a, another owner or GM, um, especially when it first came out, it was so new. And, you know, the Fanatic was doing things that, uh, you know, nobody else was really doing, goofing around with the players and, you know, maybe the occasional smashing a helmet or, uh, you know, we know, I guess, the, the beef that Tommy Lasorda, the late Tommy Lasorda had with the Fanatic. But did you ever get a call from anybody who complained that the Fanatic might be uh, getting a little too uh, aggressive out there? <laughs> My father. Is that right? Really? Yeah. My father uh, did not like the Philly Fanatic. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> that is great. Wow. He, he said, son, you've done some good things in your life. This is the worst <laughs> thing you've ever done. <laughs> oh. One of the coolest, you know, obviously it's had to be one of the biggest dreams ever for you, is then you were also when Ruley Carpenter was ready to, uh, to get out of the business. You helped put it t- together a consortium, right? And then how cool is that that you became an owner of the actual team, being involved in baseball all these years, now all of a sudden in 1981, was it, 82? Uh, 81. 81, you became an owner. Talk about just putting together that group and, and what that meant to you. Well, uh, really and I flew, uh, Mr. Carpenter and I flew down to Florida together and 
uh, next to each other in the plane, and we got into Clearwater, and I said, uh, really want to go over the dog track? <laughs> and he's not a dog track guy. And he said, no, Bill. I said, I, we're going to have a press conference tomorrow. I'm going to sell the team. And that shocked me because I didn't think the Carpenter family would ever sell the ball team. And I had always wanted to run a team. That was my goal in life. And so uh, the next day I started working on raising money and I met with lawyers and accountants and uh, just called anybody in Philadelphia that had a lot of money because I didn't have any money. I was worth about $50,000 at the time. And uh, I finally raised $30 million and went over to the Carpenter family and gave them the money. <laughs> wow. Awesome. Well, uh, and then I have to ask you, one of your favorite teams, I know you've said it uh, many times, uh, was the 1993 team. And as a matter of fact, we're here at uh, Chickies and Pizza in Warrington, and uh, Tommy Green came in to be, uh, is, is here kind of listening to our podcast with his wife, Wendy, and their son. And uh, I know how much he loved that 93 team. What, what do you remember from that year? Well, that was my favorite team. I, I don't think we were the best team we ever put on the field, but I got to know a lot of the players and uh, a couple of them I brought over I told my general manager Lee Thomas to get that John Cruck guy I liked him and Dave Hollins and of course Dutch Dalton and I were good friends over the years and uh, they were a bunch of characters and I'll never forget uh, when Lee Thomas, the general manager said, I'm going to trade Juan Samuel to the Mets for Dykstra. And I said, Lee, I would not do that. Uh, I love Samuel. I, and I still do love Samuel. But he, I, but I said, you know, you're, you're the guy. So I'll, I'll back anything you do. And so we traded Sammy to uh, the Mets and got Dykstra. And Dykstra was really I think the key player that year, he got a lot of big hits and did a lot of great things, but that was really a fun team to watch. And, uh, we got a lot of really fun ink from all the writers, broad street bullies kind of thing. And it was a bunch of good guys and Fergosi did a hell of a job managing them. And, uh, it was just fun. Yeah, I remember uh, David Montgomery saying that he got a call uh, once from George Steinbrenner who said that he really admired the team, which, you know, because of the personality on that team. You know, Steinbrenner and, and I think the Yankees probably back then, they still had the, you know, the long, they, you couldn't have long hair or mustache, facial hair and, and all that. And meanwhile, we were the opposite of that. Right. And, uh, but yet he, I think he admired it. I mean, do you think that's one of the reasons why the team was so popular? Yeah, I don't think there's any question because, you know, they played real hard and they they looked like your uh, local softball team, you know. <laughs> and, you know, they would have beer and fried chicken every game after after the game. <laughs> and they were just fun-loving guys, and but they played hard and they were smart baseball-wise. And uh, that that's the one I really remember probably more than the other championship i mean we i was involved with 13 
division championships, five National League championships, mm. and two World Series. The only two World Series Phillies ever had. So uh, it was a lot of fun. But 80, excuse me, 1993 was probably very memorable, more so than the others. It's only fitting that this series should come down to a 3-2 pitch with two outs in the night. The payoff pitch. He struck him out. And the Philadelphia Phillies have won the National League pennant. Well, Tommy Green and I were just talking about the night that you got caught in the crossfire of the Pie Wars that year. It was uh, the Phillies had just clinched in 1993 in Pittsburgh. It's in the clubhouse, and the champagne and the beer is flowing. And then you got nailed with a chocolate cream pie. Uh, Kurt Chill- I remember <laughs> Kurt Schilling got you. And I, you said that uh, you were going to remember that when contract time came, came along. Uh <laughs> Did you dock his pay at all, or uh, you were okay to get hit with a pie? I was happy getting hit with a pie. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, I don't like chocolate. That was the problem. <laughs> hey, was that the same year, too, Bill, that, that you entered the Dave Thomas lookalike contest? I can't remember the year, but I, I did do that. And, yes. you, and it's oh, the I, nationwide contest, right, that you get – I'm assuming you get free Wendy's product – the winner would get it, but a nationwide contest that Wendy's did. And what place did you get? I was runner-up. <laughs> runner, isn't and that great? Yeah, I got a hundred dollars worth of hamburger. <laughs> I should have won. You know, the funny thing was, I was <laughs> the day before uh, the uh, final decision on who was going to win. I went to I went to a Wendy's uh, hamburger stand. Or you know, store in Wind Gap, Pennsylvania, and I drove in and ordered, and I, the lady, you know, took my money, and I said, "Ma'am, will you? Uh, do you think I look like Dave Thomas, who owns Wendy?" And she looked at me and said, "No, no, no, sir, but you look exactly like that Bill Giles." Who owns <laughs> <Bill>. <laughs> Tremendous. Well, hey, another uh, big moment. Uh, in your life was 1992 you went to a game in Baltimore at Camden Yards the first year at Camden Yards and uh, I guess the light bulb went went off over your head and uh, you kind of realized that uh, something like this would be great in Philadelphia do you remember that? Uh, It's one of my great memories because we were struggling economically Um, the deal that we had with the city of Philadelphia at the vet was very very poor in regards to revenue sharing uh, for the Phillies. And when I went down and saw the Baltimore operation in 92 and talked to them about their economics and it was, I mean, it was amazing how much more money they were getting out of their new ballpark. Mm. And I've always wanted a baseball only ballpark because I grew up in one. You know, the fact that we had the Eagles at the vet, uh, wasn't really the way baseball should be played in my opinion so the idea of getting a baseball only park uh, emanated from the 1992 season when i went down to camden yards and saw how wonderful that was 
Mm. And it, it's the jewel of baseball, yeah. I think. You know, we did such a great job of it. And then I know you, you mentioned, you know, being part of two World Series with the Phillies. Uh, do you consider both those parades um, – uh, kind of the, the best days, <laughs> two of the, the, the best moments of uh, your baseball career? You cannot anticipate the feeling that you get riding in those floats down Broad Street. I mean, it is people in wheelchairs are getting out of their wheelchairs just to come over and get near the ball players, And the excitement and the, and the, uh, the, the emotion that the fans along the way and you know, hanging from the, you know, signs and things downtown uh, was really the most unbelievable experience I ever had. And then, you know, in 2008, same thing happened exactly. And I remember Tug McGraw, <laughs> final thing about <laughs> shoving it to the Mets. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at the uh, old ballpark, old football ballpark. And then, yeah, JFK, JFK. And then Utley saying what he said, <laughs> you know, hey, uh, for something I'll never, I'll never forget those two moments. Uh, I didn't tell you either, I didn't warn you that we're going to do a quiz very soon. We do it to all of our guests, but it's a quiz about your life. It is multiple choice, so you'll have a good chance. But before we go to that quiz, my last question is uh, – you know, being an owner itself, you dealt with a lot of colorful owners. I mean, I guess you had uh, Finley, you had Steinbrenner, you had George Bush, George W. Uh, talk about interacting. Who were some of your favorite owners uh, that you worked with? Well, I liked George Bush. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it when, when he became <laughs> president of the, of the United States because he was a fun-loving, told dirty jokes all the time. <laughs> uh, but 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 I like I like George a lot. Uh, O'Malley of the Dodgers was a very impressive, smart man. Um, and Charlie Finley <laughs> went to a World Series with my dad out in Oakland, and they had a they had a mule. Charlie O was the name of the mule. And we were at the cocktail party, and Charlie O the mule was at the cocktail party walking around just like a human being. And my dad had a martini in his right hand, and the damn mule started to drink the martini. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. the other thing, too, is that, you know, I know as a Phillies employee, and then Tom, obviously a longtime Phillies employee, we look to you because uh, the Phillies have always been recognized uh, for a the parties they throw uh, and the celebrations we have, you know, pregame whether it's somebody's jersey <coughs> retired, uh, you know, a lot of the different celebrations we've done throughout the years, and it's it's always attributable to you that uh, I think that's we are very appreciative of all the great parties that you have uh, started and created, and uh, Tom and I both thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Absolutely, and and even. Uh Back to 93, I'll never forget the uh, charter flight up to Toronto for their, those first two games in Toronto. I brought my brother Joe with me, and uh, I was getting married, uh, uh, let's see, less than a month later. But uh, I didn't take my fiance. I took my brother. It was, it was a good call. We had, we had a good time in Toronto. Yeah, you might not have had that marriage. <laughs> <laughs> that wedding would have been called off. It was a great time. But I remember that flight, Mr. Giles. Oh, my goodness. You know, we all got, you know, caps, and we had such a great time heading up to Toronto. And we split up there. That wasn't too bad. But uh, 
and then we recreate it in 2008 to, you know, go down to Tampa. But uh, great, great times. And, John, you're getting a little antsy over there. I see you got the quiz out for Mr. All right, Giles. Well, this is it. We're wrapping it up, and, and thank you for your time, uh, Mr. Giles. This has just been great. So we have a quiz. It's eight questions. As I said, multiple choice. It is about your life. So you should uh, have an inside track <laughs> of doing well. And we usually say if you get, uh, we'll say five out of eight. Uh, Tom, what is a great Bill Giles win? Uh, a Philly Fanatic plush doll. There you go. And I think, <laughs> I think, I think you have inside information on that. All right. Are you ready for your first question? I am, sir. All right. Well, you went to Withrow High School in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, which celebrity did not go to Withrow High? So I'm going to name four celebrities. Three of them went to Withrow High. One did not. you got to tell me which one did not. So here they are. A, former NFL player Curtis Anderson. B, actress and singer Rosemary Clooney. C, former U.S. Secretary of Defense Neil McElroy. And D, former match game celebrity participant Soupy Sales. So was it Curtis Anderson, Rosemary Clooney, Neil McElroy, or Soupy Sales? George Clooney? No, Rosemary Rosemary. Clooney. Rosemary Clooney. Rosemary, Rosemary. Yes, or Soupy Sales. I know. She, she, she lived in the I – I knew McElroy. I, I dated his daughter. Oh, there you go. Or, uh, I, it, no, uh, never mind. Not important. <laughs> I, I – uh, Soupy Sales. Soupy Sales is correct, yes. And for those who listen to our podcast, we pretty much always, or at least since we, I guess I always put a match game 76 first on there. All right. You also went to Denison University. A lot of friends that went to Denison University. Uh, which of these celebrities did not go to Denison? By the way, when I looked this up, there are a lot of celebrities that went to Denison University. So I had a, lo I had a lot to choose from. So here we go. Uh, a, actor-comedian Steve Carroll. B, Morgana, the kissing bandit. Uh, C, Indy 500 winner Bobby Rahal. Or D, former chairman CEO of Disney, Michael Eisner. So you have Steve Carroll, Morgana, the kissing bandit, Bobby Rahal, or Michael Eisner. I know Eisner. Um, geez, I don't remember seeing Morgana. Um, I, would, I guess uh, Carroll. No, Morgana did not go to. I don't think Denison. Morgana went to college. She was too busy running around ballparks and. Uh, I don't All right. Know. Okay. All right. We're going All more. Right. We're going more into the baseball mode. So right, we'll, we we'll, we'll get more into your wheelhouse. All right. Okay. This is uh, actually front. Um, you should get this one since you are really the father of the fanatic. Uh, what is the name of the fanatic's mom? Is it Phyllis, Phoebe, Philomena, or Frederica? You want the right answer? The right answer, yes. Phoebe. Yes. Phoebe is correct. All right, you're two for three. Uh, this is straight out of your book. So we'll see if uh, – how much did Mike Schmidt make in 1982, the highest paid player in baseball? Was it 800000 1 million, 2 million, or 4 million? 2 million. 2 million is correct. He's Dang. on a roll. Yeah, he is. All right, we mentioned the great Tug McGraw, and I know that had to have been one of your favorite players. Uh, one of our favorite players. What a great human being, great player. What holiday did you release Tug McGraw? That's awful, Mr. Giles. How did you do that? What, ho <laughs> what, what holiday did you release Tug McGraw? Was it Valentine's Day, St. Patty's Day, Christmas, or Easter? Valentine's Day. Because <laughs> you couldn't release him on St. Patty's Day. That was his no, day. I, yeah. Right. So, all right, you are correct. You're on a roll. All right, 
you mentioned in the books, uh, by the way, the book is called How to Chug uh, Five Beers at a Time, right? Or no, how, how to Pour. How to Pour Six Beers at six a Time. Six Beers at a Time, which yeah. is a f- absolutely phenomenal Great book. book. Uh, so go out and get it. Um, but I got this information from that. How many sit-ups did Steve Carlton do during a regular workout, and he did this with 15-pound weights on both wrists and ankles. How about that? So how many sit-ups did he do typically in one workout? Was it 500, <coughs> 200, 800, or 1,100? Um, I have no idea. I'm going to guess uh, 500. 1,100. All right. You're still, you're still, you're still there. Uh, I think we only have two, two more, more questions. Left. Two more questions. All right. Which player once was asked how he would spend his salary, and he replied, 90% I'll spend on good times, women, and Irish whiskey. The other 10% I'll probably waste. Okay? <laughs> so <laughs> was that uh, the dude, Lenny Dykstra? Was that Tug McGraw? Was that John Cruck? Or was that Larry Anderson? John Cruck. No, you know what? That was the Tugger. It was the Tugger. That was the Tugger. All right, tugger. So, which means you have to get this answer to win the plush doll of the Fanatic. So the last question. All right, which former owner was the first to sign a um, designated runner? He came up with a 20-second clock for pitchers. Never was obviously instituted until came up with the idea of interleague play, but obviously before interleague play. Uh, Gave bonuses to players for growing long hair and mustaches. So, again, he was a visionary ahead of his time. Uh, Was it Ted Turner, Bill Veck, Charlie Finley, or Ray Kroc? Yeah, it's either it's either uh, Finley or Beck. I'm gonna uh, go with your first instinct. I, 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 huh? Go with your first what? instinct, <laughs> Finley. Finley. Finley is correct. Finley. And Tom, you owe Mr. Giles a plush doll. You're getting a plush Philly fanatic doll, Mr. Giles. I'm I'm sure you don't have one. <laughs> you 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 want my address? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, uh, we can't thank you enough for joining us, Mr. Giles. This has really been uh, great. Uh, we're, we're great that you're, uh, you sound good, um, sound and healthy, stay healthy. Tommy Green says hello, by the way. Tommy Green's over here waving to you right now. So, um, Hi. All right, Tommy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, really appreciate did, did it, Mr. You, Giles. Tommy fished a no-hitter, you know. I know, in yeah, Montreal. up in Montreal. We had him as a guest last year. Yeah. Yep. The great T the Green. Well, you two guys do a great job in everything you do, except going to the wrong high school. <laughs> uh, his, his, his kids went to the rival high school of mine. So, yes. Yes. He probably well, doesn't like St. Joe's Prep either. No, he loves St. Joe's Prep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mr. Giles, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, we'll see you down the road, okay? Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. All right, the popper. The How about that, John? Isn't yeah, that great? It's just, and again, you have to read this book. If you, uh, Hopefully it's still out in, in, in publication because there are certain things that, uh, that we didn't even get to. Um, did you know that he wanted Major League B- Baseball owners way back when to buy ESPN? He proposed for them to buy ESPN mm-hmm. you know, when it was a fledgling company. I mean, could you imagine that, Major League Baseball owning ESPN? Uh, the other one is he, Ruley Carpenter, sent him in to uh, when Rulio owned the team, uh, sent him in to, to go vote when the National League was going to vote on uh, a designated hitter, mm. right? I think Ruley Carpenter yeah. uh, wanted to, was going to vote yes to put, the na- to put the designated hitter in the National League. Ruley Carpenter went fishing. And so 
I guess I guess Mr. Johnson didn't know he went fishing, and so he didn't know what his vote was, yes or no, I guess. Uh, and if he voted he, no. I knew he yeah, had the last vote, but I didn't know Rule he wanted the DH. And I, then I'm pretty sure. I'm, wow. I, I could be wrong on that. I, yeah. I thought that's what the story. Mm. And if you, he voted abstain. A couple other teens voted abstain. So if you vote abstain, mm. that basically is a no. Okay, yeah. I thought the story was that so if, that if 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 he could get a hold of Ruley, there would have been the National League, which obviously meant that Ruley would yeah. have voted yes. Yeah. Well, that rule is going to be teetering. Uh, right. Still not sure about this year, but uh, next year with the collective. It's definitely going to be. Yeah, I yeah. think it's probably. It's, it's a bargaining. Yeah. I'm sure it's a bargaining tool right now. So. Well, you and I uh, have talked about a lot uh, about Mr. Giles, John. That is, Bill Vec seems to get so much credit right. for being this innovator and marketer and crazy promotions. But, I mean, I, I got to think Bill Giles, if not equal to Vec, is, is you know, right there with him or, or even more of an innovator. I mean, uh you know, I know we, we, we grew up with all the crazy first ball deliveries, but knowing that he was doing all that stuff back in, you know, the Astrodome in Houston, you know, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and again, all the people that he's uh, interacted with, I mean, it's really is yeah. a, it's a rich life that he's, uh, you know, that he was able to, you know, again, growing up and living in dugouts and clubhouses and playing fields, you know, in, yeah. in his hometown and just and then going on to become an owner. Uh, chairman of a team. I mean, it's just it's a it's a phenomenal life. Great life, and we're uh, fortunate to to know him and uh, work for him. And still, I still feel like we're working for him, right, John? I mean, right. we had him on there. It's like still, it's Mr. Giles for sure. That, but that being said, yeah, yeah. he is just. But oh yeah. So he's always been our boss. Yes. But I mean, I, I'm sure you feel the same way. You can go into his office and he'll tell you stories, and you feel so relaxed. It's like you're talking to your uncle, right? I no mean, And that's the beauty of of Bill Giles is that he just was. Uh, he, everyone loved him, and he was a perfect person to put together that ownership group mm. because he just was that life. He's a guy you gravitated towards, uh, you know, at a party. No question. So, yeah. just it's a great man. Awesome, awesome. Well, and uh, John, we didn't talk about it uh, too much at the beginning because we got Mr. Giles right on, but uh, we are here in Warrington yep. at the Chickies and Pete's, and uh, they've been treating us really well. It's That's great Liz, to have Liz, Kelsey, Rocco, Joe. Yep, yeah. So thank you very much for that. And we're going to be here for a couple more times. Right? Yeah, yeah. We're going to be. Uh, are we doing this again next week? Is yep. it? Okay. Because uh, uh, I know we missed a week. Yep. Well, we'll see. Depends, right. on, <laughs> depends <laughs> on if we can get the guests we want. Okay. All right. right. Yeah, we're working on it. But uh, all right. Well, that's a wrap then. I uh, want to thank everybody for coming out. John, great to see Our you. My friend Rich, for, uh, bartender at Manufacturers. Manufacturers, Rich. Here. Wendy. Uh, Wendy and Tommy Green, Green and, Tommy and their son. And, yep. So it's, uh, so it's been a good time, John. And now I've got to get some crab fries, bring some crab fries home <laughs> for Jill and Charlotte because they'll be very upset if I – Come back from chickens and pizza without crab fries. I know, fries. I'm getting wings to go. I should get some crab fries, too. So uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody, and we'll talk to you next time. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.